Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. Once again, welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 150. Yes, 150 episodes here at the Back of the Range. Unreal. I don't know what to say. Um, can't believe that I have been this lucky to have a guest each and every week for the last two and a half years plus. I can't believe all the feedback I've received from people all over the country, all over the world. Excited to hear stories from the amateur game some from the professional ranks, and everyone in between. I've said it many times, if you keep listening, I will keep putting out more episodes. So here's to another 150. Some of the upcoming guests, well, it's kind of a mixed bag, really. In the next couple weeks, you'll hear from a couple of the young stars within the collegiate ranks. Mac Meisner from SMU, recent winner of the 2020 Southern Amateur. And another Texas guy, Parker Cootie, part of that young juggernaut at UT with his brother Pearson, Travis Bick, and Cole Hammer. But then we go back in time a little bit, and since the U.S. Amateur is right around the corner, you'll be hearing from a couple former U.S. Amateur champions talk about their quest for the Havemeyer Trophy. But before we look too far ahead, remember, follow along on social media. Can't stress this enough, there are some surprises headed your way. So make sure you're following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The website, thebackoftherange.com. We have towels for sale. Just had a couple sold today from uh, from Saratoga Springs, New York. And um, yeah, just love sending that stuff out. Glad everyone is just repping the logo on their golf bag. So, you know, the link is on the website, top right corner. Go ahead and take care of that. And uh, the Instagram page, that is what you really need to get on um, the back of the range podcast. Mojo updates. Well, um, I've bottled, I've bottled the mojo. So if you don't know what mojo is, just a quick explanation. For some reason, there is an actual phenomenon when guests come on the podcast, good things happen to them on the golf course shortly thereafter. Whether it's winning a tournament, getting through a Monday qualifier, uh, you know, having a great finish on the web. I know Davis Riley and Will Zalatoris are absolutely lighting up Corn Ferry. Uh, they've been on the podcast. So obviously this is all due to me. No, that's that's not right. But what I'm saying is that there is a very interesting correlation between coming on the podcast and then good things happen when they play. So we started talking about the mojo and the mojo is real. Well, now the mojo is bottled. Yes, in my never-ending quest to come up with an original logo item or swag or whatever you want to call it, there is now official mojo in a bottle in the form of hand sanitizer. Yes, my buddy Harvey hooked me up. He runs Cleaners Chemical Corporation down here in South Florida. And now I have a hundred or so bottles of hand sanitizer, you know, the little one or two ounce bottles with the carabiner clips on them or carabiner. I don't know how to pronounce it, but you know what I'm talking about. You've seen them, but now they exist with the back of the range golf podcast logo on it. So more information on that. I've already had some requests for people that want some bottles. So that's a thing now. Um, more information on how to get some will be coming soon. Seriously, the mojo is real and now you can get your hands on it. My guest this week on the 150th episode of the back of the range golf podcast head coach of the men's golf team at Baylor University with three national championships to his name, Mike McGraw. 
I get several requests and suggestions on who should be featured as a guest here at the back of the range. Coach McGraw's name has been mentioned more than a few times. This is long overdue, but thrilled to have him on the podcast. This episode has something for everyone. We spoke about his start in the game, what led him to become a coach, and he also shared some of his coaching philosophies that he's employed at Oklahoma State, Alabama, and now at Baylor. If you're a junior golfer or a parent of a junior golfer or even a collegiate golfer, you will get so much out of this episode. But if you're also looking for some just really cool stories, like, I don't know, eating carne asada and swimming at Ricky Fowler's house during a recruiting trip, or how quickly he was offered a job after he was let go by Oklahoma State, this episode has some pretty great stories in it as well. So enough of the intro. Coach McGraw, thanks so much for being the guest on episode 150. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on today. I really, really appreciate it. No, absolutely. I know we're, I'm kind of letting our, my, my listeners know when we record. So it's May 27th. Obviously lots of things are up in the air and, and, and your profession and, and college golf is, has changed dramatically over the last uh, two to three months. So we'll definitely get into that at some point, but, um, how have you been keeping yourself busy over the last uh, few weeks? I know that recruiting is a kind of a big no, no right now. So, uh, you got a you got a honeydew list around the house, or or, or what? Are, what are you doing to keep busy? Well, I've done quite a bit of landscaping around the house. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work around the house that normally wouldn't get done this time of year, which is great. Um, I have been doing it my best to keep up with my players. You know, just to see how they're doing. I was trying to encourage them. You know, as they were taking online classes to, you know, get that to the finish line. Don't don't. Uh, you know, don't fail there. You know, don't, don't let that down just because we're not in the classroom or we're not in Waco. Sure. So we, we did that. <clears throat> Had, um, uh, my assistant coach, Ryan Blagg, uh, who has applied for and then been offered and accepted the job at the university of Louisville. So busy helping him try to get that position secured and something else on my plate actually started, uh, work on a new book project. So I've been I've, I've been pretty busy. I, I, I'm not one to just sit around. I don't like to do that. Uh, I've actually experienced taking a few naps, which I've never done before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when you're not moving or not going, I used to just go 24-7. When I'd finally get home, I'd lay down and I'd just fall asleep, wake up the next day. But when when you're not in constant motion, you, you tend to, sl- I don't know, I guess a 60-year-old man, you just you take a nap occasionally. That's it's crazy. Uh, that's funny. You you spoke about getting into naps the way like some people talk about. You know, I got this new I got this new golf ball I'm trying out. I'm going to try this new grip or this new practice routine, and you're just like, no, I'm really discovering naps. Um, well, and I've never done so. Yeah. Well, they're uh, they're they're they won't they won't stir you wrong. You deserve a little bit of rest because really there's not much else going on. Um, you're in the same boat as a lot of college players, a lot of college coaches are around the country. You know, our the college season basically, I guess, shut down right around, uh, you know, middle of March. I believe you're probably, I guess you're probably on your way to the, um, to the Valspar Intercollegiate Floridian. Is that correct? Well, the day before we were going to leave, I uh, called the host coach and said, are you sure we're having this tournament? He said, I think we are. Sure, why not? And just a couple of coaches had pulled out and the rest of them were still planning on going. And then before we could actually make that decision, pretty much the NCAA came down and said, uh, you know, we're not going to have any, any championship season. We're done with this. And so 
that kind of ended it about March 15th, I think is what it was 14th or 15th. And so, yeah, that was very disappointing. It was very um, unexpected. And I don't think any of our guys were, uh, I think it shocked all of them. And I'm sure that's the way it was on every team in the country, every baseball team, every track team, you know, everybody that was involved in spring sports in the NCAA, but then it started affecting a lot more than that. The PGA tour, uh, high school sports uh, teams and, and associations. And then before you knew it, we were pretty much shut down. So um, disappointing, but also un- understanding that it's just one of those things in life. You know, you just have, there are things that are adverse that go against you that aren't great. And you've, this is kind of where character is forged and it's where uh, hopefully you do your best work as a human being. Very well said. And it's, you know, you're right. It does, it has hit everyone in many different ways. And, you know, just obviously there's a lot more important things than, than golf, but your team was ranked 10th in the country or right around that number when uh, the season was interrupted and, you know, it obviously interrupts the entire university and uh, all that progress that you made uh, in the fall leading up to, uh, you know, basically a really nice spring and leading into hopefully the national championship run, you know, they make this decision that seniors can return for another year of eligibility. I know that Cooper Dossie's coming back for another year, and and that's a tremendous positive. But I don't think a lot's been spoken about how it kind of complicates a lot of things from a recruiting standpoint or um, trying to make plans. I mean, you don't recruit for next year's team the year before. You're two, three, four years down the road looking into the future. Um, can you share maybe a little bit about how it actually complicates things a little bit for a coach well it does the coaches who already had their verbal commitments in the class of 2021 uh which i i had two already uh before the before it was uh canceled the season was canceled and before recruiting became a non-thing we couldn't recruit anymore on the road um before that happened a lot of schools probably didn't have their 2021s now they can still communicate with those kids, but those kids can't change their situation. It's a really tough deal because, you know, they planned on this spring and summer really making an impact wherever their state was or their junior golf association or on a national level. Any way you look at it, they were going to change their situation and they can't do that anymore because they can't play. Right. But junior tournaments are starting to reemerge. I've seen some that are, you know, that are happening. So maybe that'll change a little bit, but because of that, a whole class, the class of 2021, is being under-recruited, under-evaluated, under-seen, if you will. Uh, they're not, you know, coaches aren't on the road to see them actually play these tournaments. So that's been an unusual dynamic for both coach and prospect alike, because a lot of coaches, uh, you know, didn't have their full class a complement of, of verbal commitments and and. Because of that, they planned on recruiting this spring and summer and not able to do that. So on the road anyway. So, yeah, that's changed a lot right there. And it doesn't mean that kids aren't still going to have opportunities. They still are. But it also changed because the class of 2017 high school graduates who would be seniors next year get an extra year if they want to use it. Right. So now they're in direct conflict with the class of 2021 high school players. So, because if they come back, there's probably less opportunities on college golf uh, rosters. Of course. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a a crazy situation, but I always tell anybody that calls me or any player that calls me says, coach, do you have room? No, sir. I'm sorry. I don't. Right. Uh, 
you know, I tell them, you know, somebody has room for you. There's no doubt. You just have to keep searching. So uh, I think it'll work itself out. And I think there'll be opportunities for every player that wants to play college golf. And I think, but it's just going to look a lot different, especially this summer when kids are playing some junior tournaments and no coaches are there to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to, I mean, the U.S. Amateur is still scheduled to happen in August at Abandoned Dunes. And I know the, I believe the Sunny Hannah has been moved to July. And you're right. A lot of tournaments are reappearing, junior tournaments and then amateur tournaments. So, um, I mean, it'll be very interesting. I, I just mentioned Cooper Dossie, so let me follow up on that. What was the conversation like with him? I mean, he's he's battled a lot of injuries throughout his uh, collegiate career. Uh, I I know he has just such a, a love for the university. He was a guest on our on on the podcast uh, a while back. You know, super guy. Um, was that even a, a was that even a, a difficult conversation, or did did that develop pretty quickly that he was going to be coming back? Cooper is a co-captain with Colin Cober, who's from South Lake, Texas. So both of them were really enjoying their senior year. Both of them were loving our team. The it was the best team synergy or chemistry we'd ever had since they'd been here. So both of them were loving that. And all of a sudden, boom, the season's canceled. So about three days later, both of them came to me and said, Coach, we don't know what the NCAA is going to do, but there's rumor that they might you know, give everybody an extra year of eligibility. Is that is that what you're hearing? I said, yes, it is. He said, they said, both of them said, well, if they give us that extra year, we're coming back. So this was before anything else had been, they were, the, as far as I know, they were the first guys in the country who said of that 2016 high school graduates to the seniors in college who actually came to their coach and said, I'm coming back. Now, if they'll let have another year. I'm coming back. So <laughs> to me, that showed great leadership for both Cooper and Colin and uh great love for the university love for their teammates and their desire to finish what they'd started so uh, i was really happy when they did that so i'd already known before the ncaa even came down with the the um, decision that they would allow everybody all those four classes to have one more year uh, we already knew those two seniors were coming back now, do you have a relationship with them where you can kind of have a little fun with them and maybe prank them a little bit and say, well, I'm not sure we're going to have room for you. we got some freshmen coming in, but I'll get back to you in a couple of days. Or that's it's just too dangerous to do, do that to them, right? You can't do that, right? I don't think it's too dangerous, but I certainly didn't do it. It, it just <laughs> it never occurred to me. Well, that they came that, to me and said, we want to come back. And I was yeah, that's a great decision. Well, that's, that's, awesome. that's why you've won 44 tournament titles in your career, and I have a microphone in front of me. So there, that's that's one of just many differences between us. So, um, But we'll talk a little bit more about Baylor a little bit later, and then obviously you want to talk a little bit about um, Oklahoma State. As I said, you've won three or you've won forty-four tournament titles in your career. You've been to numerous NCAA national championships, three national titles. I don't want to embarrass you. You you would have offense if I called you a legendary coach, wouldn't you? You you wouldn't put up with that, would you? Probably not. Yeah, see, no. I, I know my audience. I got to stay away from that. So we'll just say that you've maybe around you know thirty All Americans your career, and we'll just stop with all the the superlatives. But let's take things back to maybe how you got into the game. Tell me about Ponca City Country Club. <laughs> it's one of the greatest play. I could, you know, how people say that I wouldn't trade where I grew up. I would not. I was so fortunate, so blessed to be able to spend every day at the Ponca City Country Club. But it wasn't that way always because I have six brothers and sisters, seven total, counting me. Right. And all of them started the game at age five. And my dad tried to get me to start the game, and I hated it. I didn't want to be around it. 
And so it was, I was age 10 before I came back to the game. But when I came back, I've, I've never left. I've, and the Ponca City Country Club was just an amazing place for a young kid to grow up. I, uh, we, you know, we had a driving range where you could pick up your own balls in the, at the bottom of the golf course. And we had a driving range where the members hit balls that I had to pick those up at the end of the day. And uh, I usually practiced by myself down in that bottom range because there wasn't anybody bugging me. And I loved that. And I was able to work with my dad and my brother and my, my twin sister, Patty, every day at the golf course. Uh, my mom worked in the golf shop. She merchandised the golf shop. My dad worked six days a week from open to close and Mondays they took off and usually went antiquing or looking for uh, sports cars or whatever their hobby happened to be at the time. But, but it was a family run operation. And uh, I, I literally, I, every time I think about the Ponca city country club, I think of great memories of just growing up and playing golf. And, and I, you know, I didn't have very many junior golfers to play with. Most of the time I was playing with adults. And so that, and they were, people who, you know, who my dad worked for. So, you know, it was a, it was an unusual dynamic, but one that I would not trade. I really loved it. Well, let's, uh, let's brag a little bit about your father too. I mean, 30 years as a golf pro, your dad played in the, in the 1949 U S open at Medina. He did. He was, a uh, gosh, he'd been playing golf. He took up, wait, started caddying at age 11. Yeah. Just to make money. And he would walk five miles to get to the golf course to caddy. He took up the game at age 13. Three years later, at age 16, he broke the course record at Abilene Country Club in Abilene, Texas, shot 61, 11 under. And then three years later, he played in a U.S. Open. So it was a pretty quick study all the way around. But the problem was, in West Texas, he hit that little low hook. And it just rolled and rolled and rolled. And he got to Medina and they had green grass and their fairways were lush and the trees were tall. And he had never seen trees like that. (laughs) So (laughs) he didn't play very well. He missed the cut, but he, he, uh, he did play the U S open. And so did my twin sister, Patty and my, her husband, Chuck, my brother-in-law played in the U S open. So we've had three family members play in the U S open. Well, I was going to ask you if, uh, if you are the, uh, the best McGraw out of the McGraw kids, if you're the best player, but I think you're already answering that question for have a chance to get it out. Uh, your, your sister Patty's in the uh, Oklahoma hall of fame, 2006 inductee. Uh, how was, I'm guessing that was a pretty special night for you as well. It was, you know, some people, when they think about their brother or their sister and, and that person is achieving at a much higher level than the other brother or sister, the sibling, uh, would be jealous. And I was never jealous. I, I went and watched her win all but one of her nine state amateur victories. Oh, wow. She won nine times. And I stopped whatever I was doing to go watch the final if I could. I missed one of them. But, it, it um, you know, I was always very proud of what Patty accomplished. And she was just a very natural golfer and a great competitor. But my brother, Tim, is truly the best player in the family. Uh, Tim was just and still a great player today at age 64 or whatever I think he is. Um, just a beautiful golf swing, so repeating, so powerful. Uh, just a, I mean, Tim is a really, really talented guy. But uh, so, you know, we had, we've had some pretty good players in the family. And Chuck played the U.S. Open. Chuck uh, Patty's husband, Chuck Cotney, played in the U.S. Open at Southern Hills in 1977. So, um and Patty played in her U.S. Open at Cedar Ridge in Tulsa in 1983. So, uh, yeah, had a pretty good 
playing family overall, and I know I wasn't the best player by by a long shot. <laughs> well, I so. mean, I'm looking at you know if anyone's listening or anyone's reading your your accomplishments and obviously where you got your start in the game. You know, I'm thinking, okay, this this guy Mike McGraw is going to be a, be a teaching pro. He's going to follow in his father's footsteps. And you know, I know you were an assistant pro, and then I know you kind of got into uh, junior golf. Um, uh, you're a director of junior golf. And when did I guess when did you kind of transition from just teaching the game to actually coaching teams? Because I know you started, uh, you know, at the high school level. But when did that start for you? I had been the junior golf director at Kicking Bird Golf Course yeah. in Edmond, Oklahoma, which, by the way, there there needs to be a book written about Kicking Bird. An amazing, amazing place. Um, just Art Proctor, who was the head pro that I worked for at the time, he got more kids started in junior golf. He taught D- Danny Edwards and David Edwards and Doug Toole and Gil Morgan and Mark Hayes. He taught all kinds of tour players that came from Oklahoma. Uh, but Kicking Bird was an amazing place. And I had been working out there as the junior golf director for about three or four years when the coach at Edmond high school, a guy named Mark Maids, really nice man, uh, was going to retire and he wasn't a golfer, but he had done a really good job with the program, you know, keeping kids in line and, and getting them organized and getting them to tournaments. And, uh, he told me, he says, you need to really be a coach. And Mark was the one that, that gave me the idea of just go back and get a few of these teaching courses. You know, I already had a degree, but I didn't have a teaching degree. And, uh, he's the one that encouraged me to do the, that. And so I ended up being a coach, but it, I'd been a junior golf director for about three and a half, four years when that happened. So when you get into, and, and you're going to have to explain to me a little bit about the high school system in Edmond, Oklahoma, because I, I when I look at players like Austin Eckroad and I look at players, you know, like uh, Kevin Tway and, and a lot of the other Hayden Wood, a lot of these guys have played Oklahoma state. They all have Edmund behind it, but there seems to be numerous high schools in Edmond. So I apologize for not understanding that, but how many high schools are there in Edmond, Oklahoma? When I got to Edmond in 1979, there was only one Edmond Memorial high school. Okay. And in the fall of 93, they added two high schools. They added Santa Fe high school and Edmond North. And that's when I, transitioned from coaching at Edmond Memorial over to Edmond North and coached my last four years in Edmond were the first four years Edmond North had a school. And so that's when the changeover happened. Edmond had grown so fast and so large that you couldn't just have one high school. I think they might be in the process of adding another high school very soon. I'm not sure, but it has grown a lot through the years and, uh, just having, uh, Having been there, when I got there, it was already a great high school golf program, and the junior program was already finished. I did I did not create any of that. I, I just tried to augment what I already saw in place, and I was uh, sort of a coach that coached them in the summer, went into their junior tournaments in the summer, uh, even had a fall junior golf program. And Kicking Bird was a, a meeting place for all the junior golfers in Edmond. They would all, even the kids that were members of country clubs, would find their way to Kicking Bird at some point, and. We had a putting contest on the on the putting green there, pretty much five or six nights a week. Uh, it was impromptu. You didn't. Nobody signed up. You just did it and you putted for hours. And that was kind of the way the kids ended their day. But so that kicking bird and then Oak Tree uh, came along and it yeah. was just amazing what they built out at Oak Tree. And then several other golf courses emerged in Edmond. But Edmond was a golf community. Period. It was just all about golf. The uh, tour players that lived there, the tour players that played out of Oak Tree, Art Proctor promoting the game at Kicking Bird. There were just so many people that cared about 
junior golf, high school golf, professional golf, and just golf in general. And golf grew, and it was a, a bedroom community, so north of Oklahoma City, and, you know, fairly affluent. I mean, there was a lot of people that had money, so they could afford the game, and but they also supported their kids in a big, big way. And, you know, I, I look back on those days and think about uh, how many parents I got to know, how many families I got to know. And I, I would get them in the junior golf program when they were eight, nine or 10 and then watch them graduate from high school. And so that 12 to 15 year period when I was the junior golf director and then the high school golf coach, uh, I saw a lot of generations of junior golfers come through and I wouldn't trade that for anything because that's where I kind of started the idea that I would be a coach one day. And then once I became a coach, I never had any thoughts of becoming a college golf coach. I didn't think that would happen. Really? I uh, just, no, not really. I didn't. I was offered the university of Oklahoma assistant coaching job in 1992. Uh, but we were in a really good run at Edmond and I just didn't think I wanted to leave at the time. And I, I just started teaching a couple of years before really just a few years before. So I was enjoying teaching. I was a middle school uh, middle, middle school social studies, geography, and history teacher, which I absolutely loved. And I wrote a junior golf column for the newspaper. Um, I literally just immersed myself in junior golf in Edmond and was loving every minute of it. So uh, it was another time about five years later when um, Mike Holder actually offered me a job at Oklahoma State that that I decided I would get in. Well, we're 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 deeply entrenched in this conversation with junior golf. So I, I have to naturally ask you from when you started in the junior golf scene, probably in mid eighties, I guess is fair to say compared to now with what you're seeing as, you know, whether it's the head coach at Oklahoma state head coach at Baylor assistant in Alabama um, compared now to what you see now to what you see then. I mean, obviously scale is, is something you can speak to. It's grown so much, but Maybe what are some of the things that you've seen that perhaps have improved junior golf or maybe some things that have been a detriment to junior golf? Well, I think one of the things that's been a detriment, I hate to start with a detriment, but is the fact that kids sometimes lose the love of the game, just the love of playing the game, period. Just going out with your buddy and just playing all day long. I mean, literally stopping to get a drink or a Coke or whatever uh, and just keep going. Uh, they kind of lost that because it's all about you have to prepare for the next tournament and you you have to do this and you've got to go work out. You've got to do that. Now, those things are part of the game today, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do any of those things. You should. But if there's one thing that I think some of the kids have lost is the true love for the game. And honestly, that happened in my coaching uh, late in my time at Oklahoma State, which we can talk about here in a minute. But, sure. Uh, when you lose the love of what you're doing, you're not going to be as good at it. it you, you can't be. You won't be. And you won't inspire the people you're supposed to be inspiring. You won't be leading the people you're supposed to be leading. So uh, when, when I talk about junior golf, I, I, I love it when some kid loves the game, just the pure essence of what the game is. I, I, that part intrigues me a lot. And so, uh, But I hate it when it, it's already become a job for the kid at a young age. And I think when that happens, it's either self-imposed, uh, maybe the parents or maybe outside influences, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a swing coach, but somebody takes and robs them of the joy of just playing the game. And so I, 
I hate it when that happens. I don't think that's good. But I do believe the kids are a whole lot more sophisticated. They're much more athletic because athletes are taking up the game. You can thank Tiger for that. He really had an influence on kids who actually would have played other sports now play golf. Um, I think that the kids know more about the game than I did. They just do. And they're better. And, you know, most people, I'm a golf historian, truly a golf historian. I love the history of the game. I read about it all the time. But I'm not one of those golf historians who says everything was better back then. It's not true. It's just not true. Uh, There's a lot of things that are better today. And I think as a coach, you can still teach the same values, the same ethics, the morals, the uh, principles, the values. You can still teach all of those things that were being taught 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. You just deliver it differently. It's just as a different delivery. But uh, I want the kids that that play for me to enjoy the game as much when they leave college as they, as when they got here. And I want the kids that are, you know, taking up the game to just love it for the pure enjoyment of the game. I, it, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. You know, you, I'm just looking at your, the scope and the trajectory of your career. And you started as, as you said, you started as a, as a volunteer assistant coach of a high school golf team. And I'm thinking now, as I, as I listen to you speak, that that would be a great way to actually give back to the game and help grow the game. I mean, you can obviously, you know, there there are financial things you can do that that all of us can do, you know, help out the local uh, muni or, or, you know, things like that. But if someone wants to volunteer at the high school level, and I'm sure there are high school golf teams all across the country that could use a an extra uh, set of eyes or an extra person to help out, I know it's a kind of a tough question, but is there maybe one or two things that you that that person volunteering for that team can try and bring and incorporate into that team just as as an elder, as someone that is, has played the game that can help grow, uh, you know, grow youth uh, through the game? Maybe what are a couple of things they should keep in mind that'd be a good thing to bring? Well, you can bring perspective. You can let them understand you're playing a game. You're going to play the rest of your life if you want to. You can play it. I mean, I'm 60. And I still, I mean, I'm physically able to go out and play golf, which I don't think a lot of 60 year old quarterbacks or linebackers are out tackling people. It just doesn't happen. Your body's beat up. So I think you you teach them that it's just something we can do for the rest of our lives. You can teach them all the things that game of golf itself teaches you. It teaches you humility. It teaches you discipline. It teaches you uh, work ethic. It teaches you um, just Uh, there's a solitude about the game of golf too. When you go out and practice and work at it yourself, there's a, uh, just a lot of lessons that can be learned. Uh, and so I think a volunteer assistant coach could bring some of those things perhaps, or he could find out what that coach who's allowing him to volunteer thinks that need to be brought to the team. You know, maybe this guy is a volunteer who's been a great player. So maybe he gives, uh, playing lessons to the guys. Maybe he, you know, all the time when young coaches, or young people are wanting to get into the coaching profession. I talked to him about volunteering at a local um, high school and their thought is, well, I want it now, <laughs> you know, right, right. I, I want to be a coach right now. I said, well, you do, but you have to have coach behind your name on your resume someplace. If you want to get hired. <laughs> Sunday. Okay. Plus you need an experience of actually going through it. Uh, you know, I talked to him also about reading books and educating themselves, but truly the best education you can get is by experiencing it because you don't know what it's like. I mean, I remember the moment I went from being the junior golf director and, a, and their buddy and the guy that helped them out and the guy that was just, we love that Mike McGraw. He's a great guy. 
to all of a sudden now being the coach who makes the decisions and who decides who's getting on the van to go to the tournament and who decides how we're going to practice and how we're going to work out or whatever we're going to do. Now, all of a sudden, and I made them call me coach from the start because the first generation of kids that I worked with in Edmond all called me Mike. That's what that's what they knew me as. That was my yeah. name. But in order to draw a line in the sand, which meant I needed their respect as a coach, I, they had to call me coach. And so it was a little rough for that first class to kind of get used to calling me coach. But once we got past that, it wasn't a problem at all. But I, I think young guys need, if you want to get into the coaching profession, you're going to have to be willing, not willing, that's the wrong word, eager. You have to be eager to say, I'm going to make some sacrifices to make this happen. And, you know, and they asked me, well, how'd you get into it? Well, I didn't, my, my path is not normal. You don't coach, you don't become a junior golf director for four years, a high school coach for nine years, an assistant coach at a division one school for seven, a women's head coach for one, and then become the head coach at Oklahoma state. That's not how you get the job. It's just how I did. Right. That, so, you know, I try to tell them uh, another thing the game teaches you is patience. Just be understanding, even though this generation, and I'm going to talk, I'm you're good, digressing. you're good, you're but good. I said, I'm not one of those guys who thinks everything was better in my generation. One thing this generation does a whole lot better job of than mine is believing they could do something great at 21 years of age. Uh, always before, when Jack Nicholas did what he did at 21 or two, people were shocked, and then it was years before anybody did anything to approach it. And then when Tiger Woods came along and he did it, it was great. But, you know, it's and Phil Mickelson did it as well. But most of this generation believes it could happen at that age. And I think that's fantastic. The one thing they might miss on is understanding there is a learning curve and there is some things you must experience uh, if you want to get that, make that happen. And, you know, I, I look at Justin Thomas, who I'm just intrigued by. But I mean, at 21, he thought he was going to be one of the world's great players. He knew it. He just knew it. Um, Roy McElroy, same. So I love that part about this generation that they believe they can do things that my generation thought you had to wait your turn. Right. And that sounds kind of silly, but we really kind of did. We didn't mean to, but that's, I think that's the way we felt it was. And anyway, so I, I love that the way they kind of ripped off the, 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 the ceiling or the, you know, the limit or barrier there. But I think one thing my generation had was a healthy work ethic. And the one thing my dad's generation had was just an amazing work ethic. You grow up in the depression, you'll figure out a work ethic really quick. <laughs> you know, my dad, my dad always had, he, he didn't have a wallet. He had a few credit cards, I guess, uh, some, a driver's license, a couple of other cards, maybe his PGA club pro card, and then a bunch of money with a big rubber band wrapped around it. And one day I said, Dad, can I see your, your wallet? And he hands it to me. And I counted, and there was $1,000. And I said, my gosh, Dad, what are you doing with $1,000? And he said, son, if you grew up in the Depression, you always want to know that you're not going to return to that Depression. And I carry around $1,000 with me to remind me, okay, I'm out of that Depression. I'm not there anymore. And if I spend $100 at the grocery store or get, get gas or whatever, I just go straight to the bank. And take out another hundred dollars. I've got to have a thousand dollars. And I say, well, that's not very smart, Dad. Because <laughs> if somebody finds out you got a thousand dollars, they're gonna they're gonna bop you over the head. But but I think about my dad's generation, and I think about how he learned to work, and it just was part of the deal. You didn't even think about it. You didn't even question it. And uh, so I think this generation, 
you kind of have to encourage them to understand the value in work. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And then once you teach them that, then maybe they can take their self-belief and what they think they could do and take it further. But I love this generation for the, the fact they don't see barriers the way I saw barriers. This is fantastic because uh, I love the fact that we're, we're talking more life lessons than just, you know, fairways and greens and how to not three putt. So this is great. Let's keep going in this direction. But let me get a little more specific. I know there are plenty of players that you can choose from when I ask you this question. But can you give me an example and a story about one of your former players, whether it's Oklahoma State, Bama, Baylor, anything, one kid that you started recruiting, you got into your system early on that just had it right away, that had that work ethic, that knew that they were going to succeed, knew it was going to take some time, but still had that belief that it can happen quickly. Well, one of them would be Charles Howell, who um, came on campus two months after I got hired at Oklahoma State. So Mike Holder had recruited him, and I was going to be Charles's assistant coach. Um, it was so obvious to me Charles was going to play pro golf. And I always said, I learned this from Charles, if you know a tour player when you see him, you just cut him open, and inside his DNA says, I'm a golfer. And that's what Charles' DNA was. He just... I'm a golfer. That's what I know how to do. And that's what I'm going to do. And it's, and it was never a question. So, uh, and Charles would get to the golf course and he would practice until about 15 minutes before dark. He'd go over and he'd fish for about 15 minutes and go study and make straight A's. He was a, just an amazingly disciplined guy all through the three years he was at Oklahoma state. And he was fun to be around because he was also a very, funny guy i mean charles had a great sense of humor uh, and he could sit down and talk to anybody and he's um every time i ever took a, a a college golf team to have dinner with him when we'd play in florida uh charles was was an amazing listener and he would ask our guys questions so he was in a learning stage he's still in a learning stage charles is 40 years of age he'll be 41 later in in june and i, I think charles will never stop learning and i don't know when he's going to start playing poorly. I just think he'll play great until he decides he don't want to play anymore. So, but that wasn't my player. That was truly Mike Holder's player. And uh, he recruited him and probably one of the greatest jobs of recruiting in college golf history to get him to come all the way out to Oklahoma. And a funny story on Charles was, so I was thrilled that I was going to get to be around and coach Charles Howe. And um, his parents had driven him out in a rental car and Charles's car in two cars and they drove out from Augusta, Georgia, got him all moved in, spent the weekend with him. And it was time for them to leave and go back to the airport and fly home. And they, they walked back from the dorm. They kind of got lost and found their car and there's Charles at the car. And he's gotten actually got in the back seat and, uh, his dad looks at the rear view mirror and says, Charles, what are you doing? He says, I don't know, dad. I don't think, I don't think I'm ready to do this. Oh. And his dad said, son, you are ready to do this. Let's just get in there and let's go. And so Charles got out of the car and went in and, and he was fine after, you know, he was homesick early. Sure, there was sure. no doubt about it. Absolutely. But the point was, was it was like, okay, am I really ready to do this? And this was the best junior golfer in the country who would eventually be the best college player in the country for sure. And it was he was still questioning it, but I have a great story about his dad, sure, Char Charlie Howe, who's a, a, a pediatric surgeon and very well respected man, and just a very disciplined guy. And I, I know that's where Charles got his discipline. 
And so we were at a tournament and Charles came down uh, to the breakfast table and uh, he wasn't feeling well. And we got to the golf course and he told Coach Holder, he says, Coach, I don't feel very well. And he said, I've got this, 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 and this. And he, he named off all his ailments and how he felt. And he said, I, I think I might have some kind of really serious sickness. And so Mike Holder ran, 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 and finally found Doc Howe and brought him over and said, Charles, tell him what you just told us. And he told his dad, and he says, Dad, I've got this, and I've got this, and I've got this, and I've got this. And he looked at him, he says, Charles, what you've got is 36 holes of golf to play today. Now get your butt over in the practice tee. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, now his dad was an amazing guy and was truly never overbearing. But what he was saying was, you're fine. Let's go do this. And Charles gutted it out that day, played pretty well, you know, for a kid who wasn't feeling well. And I think the great thing about Doc Howell was he, he wasn't going to coddle his son. He wanted his son to tough, be tough, be resilient. And he was teaching a, a life lesson right there. Was Charles sick? I don't know. He didn't feel very well, but he certainly was able to go out and play that day and did fine. And his dad knew Charles a lot better than we did. So, uh, yeah. but anyway, that, anyway, Charles Howell was an amazing memory that I have of somebody I coached. But another kid that was really put together was Ricky Fowler. And I did recruit Ricky. And um, he came from Southern California. And he just had everything all together. He was the number one ranked amateur in the world coming into college. He won his second college golf tournament, set a, a record at a course record at Olympia Fields, and was a Walker Cupper there that first semester. And just put together always in contention only one three or four times in those two years he was at oklahoma state but always in contention always put together always doing a good job in the classroom he was he was just easy to be around easy to travel with so very well put together freshman for sure coach holder recruited uh uh charles Howell the third uh, but you know you recruited ricky fowler to oklahoma state and you mentioned it was tough to get your you know to get Hal all the way from Georgia, Oklahoma. Well, you had to go all the way out to Marietta, California to get Ricky. I'm just curious, you know, you have that, like you said, the number one ranked prospect. I mean, this is the blue chip that every big team probably is trying to get. Can you think of a, maybe a time when you, you kind of knew you had him or was there times when, gee, I don't know. I'm just a, a recruiting process like that. I mean, obviously you have the pedigree of Oklahoma state. You could sell them on, but Still, at some point, the kid has to come to the campus and be comfortable, and he has to be comfortable with you and the rest of the team. Can you maybe share a story about that process? It was a long process, believe me. And he had actually even committed to another school and then didn't decommit. He just opened up recruiting again. Uh, he knew he'd made too early in a of a decision, but he did take a visit to Stillwater. And he tried to commit on that visit. His parents wouldn't allow him to. He, they wanted him to see other schools first, which I thought was wise. Yep. I, it, it didn't didn't feel very good that day because <laughs> here's the kid trying to commit to me. Just hold but, this uh, pen. Just hold it and just just hold it. See how the pen feels. Then if you want to write your name on, oh, this random piece of paper, see how that feels too. So Yeah, well, it didn't happen. But oh. anyway, so that following summer, I'm still recruiting him. And... I'm at the U.S. Junior at Rancho Santa Fe Country Club in Southern California, just outside of San Diego. And I'm there to watch Ricky, but also to watch Kevin Tway. And yeah. Kevin, who literally was going to be a cowboy from day one, I, I always believed Kevin 
earned the right to be recruited. He was the U.S. junior champion. He won several AJGA events. He was an AJGA first-team All-American. He was the best player in 35 years in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, he earned that right. So I did recruit Ricky, and I was out there watching – or Kevin. I was out there watching him. Ricky had lost his quarterfinal match, and Kevin was playing in the semifinal match. And so Ricky was out watching him. And I get a phone call on my phone, and it's Ricky. Hey. Ricky, how are you? Well, I'm right across the fairway from you. I said, well, I can see you over there. <laughs> I can see you. But he was calling me, so I was able to take his call. And he said, um, you, you always said you wanted to take a home visit to uh, Marietta. Would you like to do that tonight? I said, absolutely. So he texted me his address. I drove up there, had dinner with his family who had invited the whole neighborhood, all of his dad's motorcycle, motocross buddies, <laughs> his, his mom's. Uh, ladies that uh, owned horses that were friends. And so the whole neighborhood was there. And we had what they called carne asada, which was great. And we were out by the pool. I even swam on this visit. I, you know, it's like crazy. So uh, it's about 11 o'clock at night. Ricky and I are the only two still there. And his mom comes out and says, hey, uh, you guys need anything? And I thought to myself at this time, here's Ricky. We're stand, sitting here out by his pool, talking about life, talking about his career, talking about he probably wouldn't do this with somebody he didn't want to go play for. Right. So it was kind of like that was the moment I figured, I think this kid will eventually commit to Oklahoma State. I, I believe he will. Uh, but he didn't that night. I can tell you that. So but uh, he did a, a month later. So. And the rest is uh, the rest is history. I mean, that's a, that's a great story. Uh, you get just going out there, just meeting the entire neighborhood practically. I mean, it was everybody they knew. I can tell you that it was a big group, but great people, awesome people. So. Yeah, that's great. Well, I wanted to talk to you about Oklahoma State a little bit further. So, you know, after this this great run, you uh, you know you win the national championship in '06. It's your first uh, your first season there as the uh, as the um, the head coach. And, you know, I'm going to ask you about how things kind of went in a different direction because, uh, you know, the university, uh, you know, uh, you know, they, they let you go around, uh, you know, the start of the fall season 2013. And for people asking me or people wondering why I'm asking a guest about perhaps, I guess you could say, maybe the lowest point of their professional career. Well, you wrote about it. You have a book that you've published that's been through several uh, prints. Uh, Better Than I Found It is the name of the book. And you spoke about numerous topics. You're very candid, very vulnerable about getting your dream job, so to speak, and then it 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 goes away. You're at the highest of highs of winning a national championship, and then you know you get replaced after a few rough seasons. And I guess the easiest thing in the world to do would be to you know go away and and uh, you know take a break and kind of rethink what you wanted to do. Um, I know eventually you you joined the next season as an assistant under J.C. Well at Alabama, but. You know, you're. You, I think you mentioned it earlier. You kind of fell out of love uh, with coaching. What do you think led to that? For for well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I think what led to it was just my inability to handle uh, expectations. The weight of 65 years, basically, of history at Oklahoma State. I knew about that history. I had grown up in the shadows of that history. I had my favorite player. My two favorite players, other than Jack Nicholas when I was a boy growing up were Mark Hayes, who was a three-time All-American at Oklahoma State, and Greer Jones, who was a two-time All-American and the NCAA individual champion and the rookie of the year on the PGA Tour. Can you imagine having two guys that were just, you don't know the names Mark Hayes or Greer Jones, perhaps, but 
I did because they, they played their college golf 40 miles from where I grew up and I worshiped those guys as a boy. So, uh, I had grown up in the shadows of that program, knowing the history of it very, very well. And when I took the job, I knew what was expected and, but I took the job anyway, and I was thankful to have that job. And, uh, but what happened and what led to my downfall was just not handling, um, worrying about, I would worry about our result because there was an alum or a donor or the head athletic director, Mike Holder, who had hired me, he would be wondering, why is the team not better? Every guy who'd ever been an All-American there, every guy who'd ever played there would be wondering what's happened to the program, you know, if we don't succeed. And trust me, the first six years I was there, we had the best program in the country. Uh, you know, we had the most victories, the most first-team All-Americans, most college players of the year. I mean, you could go down the list and just kind of spin it any way you want, and yeah. we were definitely one of the best teams. And and but when it came right down to it, uh, when things started to slide, I knew what was happening, and I, I literally would do this: I would wake up in the morning early, and I'm an early riser, and I would just take a deep breath, and I would hold that breath all day long. <laughs> Not just figuratively, but I would sure. be holding my breath the entire day and I would finally let that breath out just in time to go to bed and then do it again tomorrow. And this is a guy coming from a, a faith background. I have a very, very strong faith that uh, my Lord and Savior is going to is going to take care of these things and he's in control and he he's got all the answers. But I still was led down a path where I've got to figure this out and I've got to grind through this and I've got to, and what I came to the conclusion after I got fired was that I was a much better 27 year old high school coach volunteering for Mark maids than I was as a 53 year old, you know, uh, coaching some of the best players in the country. Um, I was better because I was coaching for the pure enjoyment of coaching, helping young men achieve what I couldn't at their age, helping, you know, just, hopefully motivating them and make it the same way I told you early that I want young players to just keep loving the game. Well, I had lost the love for coaching because it was all about results and it was, and that was nobody's fault, but mine. So don't think I'm pointing any fingers like, well, if they, right, if they no, it was me. Um, I, I knew what I was doing and I knew what I was getting into. So, um, and even so much as Mike Holder told me when he hired me, he said, now, Mike, these expectations are going to be pretty unrealistic and they're probably not going to be very fair. Do you still want the job? And I said, are you kidding? Of course I do. Absolutely. And but that was part of the reason that when Mike fired me, that it was so easy to forgive him. I mean, almost immediately forgive him because it was like, uh, yeah, that hurt. But he gave me an opportunity that most high school coaches will never, ever, ever get. So, you know, I've always had him to thank for that and he taught me so much things that i use today he taught me uh he taught me some things i wouldn't do also but that's what you do when you're an apprentice when you're learning you you pick out all the things you think would be amazing as a head coach or whatever it is you're going to become and then ooh, i don't think i would do that or that's not my style i wouldn't do that i mean that was so he you somebody's always teaching you they might be teaching you what you need to do and they might be teaching you what you think you'd never do but uh so that's kind of how I got to that point. And uh, about 45 minutes after it was announced on the Internet that uh, that I'd been let go, J.C. will call me. And I told him yes immediately. Wow. So before we talk about Alabama, tell me, I guess this is the natural follow up question. You know, you just said what your downfall was, but 
how do you trust in the process and not focus on the results when you and everyone else ultimately knows that our, at least in golf, our successes and our failures in this game are so tied to, to numbers, to results. So how did you kind of reset and start trusting in the process? Well, I mean, that would be my faith. It truly would be because okay. I, I, okay. I just, I think that it's like, okay, I got sidetracked for a while and I truly believe that God just took that away from me because I had made it a God. I'd made it so important to me. Now is, is this job at Baylor important to me? Absolutely. Was it important to me at Alabama? You bet. But I had a different perspective. I had a perspective like, you know what, if I had it to do over again at Oklahoma state, would I change anything? I'd probably change one thing. And that is I would never let a result affect me the way I let the results affect me. Uh, the sad part about it was the wins I never, ever got to enjoy the wins yeah. as much as I should have. And I let the defeats just destroy me. And so I look at what Michael Jordan said about his why he was so successful. He, he always said he was so successful because he failed so many times. Jack Nicholas said the same thing in golf. It was like, you know, if you think about it, Nicholas won in 20, first 25 years on tour, he won 13% of the time. And then Tiger, in that great 11-year stretch from, oh, 97 to 08, he won 29% of the time, which is unheard of to win that one out of every three times, basically, almost. Um, but the winner, you don't win. You, nobody wins. I mean, somebody does, but there's a whole lot of people who don't every time they hand out a trophy. There's a ton of people that don't win. So uh, I guess I was able to finally divorce myself from, okay, there's the guy holding the trophy. I must not be very good or I must not be worth very much. I was able to finally divorce myself completely from that. I, I can control several things. One of them is not the result. I cannot control the result. If I could, what, what would you shoot today? If you could, if you control the score, what would you shoot? Oh, if I could control the score, I'd, I'd, birdie, sure. I'd, oh, I'd birdie every hole and eagle every par five, maybe throw a couple of hole in ones in there. And uh, yeah. I'd, okay. I'd, so I'd, you'd shoot I'd, somewhere I'd, in the high forties. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay, well, I would shoot 18. I would never not make a hole-in-one if I could control the score. Because the worst I'm going to do is a playoff. That's the worst I can do. But I can't control the score. You can't control the score. We can't control the result or the outcome. We can do a lot of things that lead to a better outcome. And then we can hand, do a better job of handling whatever outcomes come our way, even if it's winning. You know, Winning is not necessarily always a blessing. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, John Wooden always said, he said, I wish my friends one national championship. I wish my enemies multiple national championships. <laughs> it was like, I just, I mean, there was so much wisdom in that right there. And, uh, but it doesn't mean I don't want to win one at Baylor. I definitely want to, but I, I just think my perspective has changed about what, what one, what is important. And, I think I'm more of a heart-driven coach now um, than I was the last few years at Oklahoma State. Last few years at Oklahoma State, I was coaching out of desperation. Sad to say, uh, not not proud of it, but I was just coaching out of desperation. And it wasn't a healthy me at all. And so when Mike fired me, about took about 15 seconds. I was absolutely gut-wrenched, gutted. And then I took a deep breath and I thought, whew. I'm, I'm going to get to coach again. Right, I don't know where, right, right. but I'm going to get to coach again and, and I'm going to enjoy that. And so I forgave Mike basically right away. 
and Mike and I have the best relationship we've ever had now. So there's absolutely zero, zero uh, bitterness or anger or resentment toward Oklahoma State. That was a great, great uh, 16 years that I spent. Wouldn't trade it for the world either. Well, that explains why you, okay, so that helps me understand you're, you're accepting the job at Alabama literally in an hour, I guess, after you, uh, after you were let go by Oklahoma State, because from the outside looking in, someone could think, wow, this guy is, he needs a break. He's burnt out. He's really kind of had gone through the ringer the last few years. He's just going to take a few months off and weigh his options. But you jumped right back into it because, and I'm guessing, I mean, obviously that year, you know, you won a national championship. That was the, uh, that was the back end of the, of the back-to-back that they, uh, that they won. Uh, you think you had, let's see, you had Whitsitt and you had uh, Bobby Wyatt and, and Mullinax. So you guys had had a pretty strong crew there. Um, not to say that that one year was a, I'm definitely not saying, I'm, I don't know why I'm saying it this way, but I'm like, was it almost just kind of like a, a retreat or just a little bit of a breather for you that one year where you can just kind of relax, reset, and get much back into the love of coaching? That had to be a fun year for you, even without the national championship. Yeah, I'll never be able to duplicate what happened that year. And J.C. will. He'll never be able to duplicate that either. So he called me up. You want me to tell you how he asked me? I mean, sure. That's what we do here. We tell stories. He had a great assistant coach, Rob Bradley, who ended up going to Purdue. And Rob had gotten the job that morning. where The day it was announced, he'd gotten taken the job at Purdue. And so Jay was kind of thinking about who, who would he hire, who would he think about that evening it's announced on the internet that I've been fired. Oh my gosh. And Jay mustered up the courage. I don't know why it took courage, but he told me it did to get on the phone. And he said, coach McGraw, I'm so God, I feel terrible. Really sorry that happened to you. So I, I, I'm going to ask you a question and, and this may affect our friendship and I hope it doesn't uh, affect it in a negative way, but I want to know Rob Bradley took a job this morning at Purdue. And I want to know, would you come to work with me? And I said, yes, immediately. And the first thing that struck me was he said, I want you to come work with, with. me, not for me. And it's like he basically was saying, you need some time off. You need some time away from the pressure cooker that you've allowed yourself to be in. You need time away from that. And which made, was kind of crazy because I was going down to a, another program that well, was yeah. the best in the country. Uh, but um so we talked for a few minutes and I said, yeah, well, you know, I've got to get it past Pam, my wife. I'm sure she'll say yes. <laughs> I mean, I'd never lived outside the 405 area code. Okay. So grew up 40 miles north of Stillwater, coached high school golf 40 miles south of Stillwater and played college golf there and then coached in Stillwater for 16 years. So I didn't even know anything different. And here I am going to Tuscaloosa. You know, that's I, I've never been in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And so we talked for about five minutes and. Finally, Jay said, okay, coach, before we, before you go to Pam and ask her and before I take this any further, I want you to know, I I don't want the guy that I saw the last two or three years showing up in Tuscaloosa. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I didn't really enjoy that guy. The guy I want showing up is the seventh grade social studies teacher at Sequoia Middle School. I want the junior golf director at Kicking Bird. I want the high school golf coach at Edmund North. That guy, he needs to show up in Tuscaloosa. So that's the guy I want. And I thought, wow, this is really going to be perfect because he's literally going to give me a safe place to land for a year or two or however long it is. And I, I will be able to 
reinvigorate my love for the game, for uh, the game of coaching. And just um, anyway, I, I was I was floored by that, uh, the way he phrased it and the way he talked to me about that. And honestly, it, I could talk for another hour and a half just on what Jay did for me that year. But suffice it to say, we had fun in the office. Uh, there was a wall that separated us and we'd sing country music songs and a classic rock song. <laughs> and uh, he'd yell at me and I'd yell at him. And uh, we drank coffee together and we had just an absolute blast and had an amazing team to coach. Um, and Jay didn't make me do the normal things that assistant coaches do. I did a little paperwork, not much. He said, you're here to coach and that's what you're here to do. And so thanking Jay, I've done it a thousand times over, but I'll never be able to thank him enough for what he did for me. And uh, he's such a humble guy. He taught me it's okay to cry in front of your players. He did it about once a week. So <laughs> passionate, so absolutely just loved his players and loved helping them. And so that year right there, that that was just a great, great, great uh, opportunity for me to reinvigorate my love for coaching. Sounds like it's almost just like a very large scale volunteer job you kind of landed in for about a year. Yeah, and I realized that getting an assistant coach's pay that assistant coaches aren't paid. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> yeah, I noticed he didn't talk. Uh, he didn't mention that early in the conversation either. But that's okay. Um, so yeah, that had to have been just an incredible uh, experience there. And then, you know, it's short lived because then Baylor, you know, Baylor comes calling, and and now you're getting ready to take another head coaching job. And what you've done there in the last, I believe, uh, six years just really completely turned around that program. What were some of the things you noticed coming into Baylor in your first year that, um, that you were like, okay, these are, these are going to be some challenges and, and we're going to need to work on these. But as a, as an, as a veteran coach coming into a new program in uh, another new state, another new location, you know, what were some of the things you started with right away? Well, the, the one thing I noticed right from the beginning was that Greg Priest coach, who coached before me, who wasn't fired. He literally took a job as an athletic director in Tyler, Texas, as a the Tyler independent public school system athletic director. And he took another job. But uh, Greg recruited great kids. Greg recruited kids who wanted to get their degree. He, he recruited kids who um, were very respectful and very appreciative of what they got. I mean, I showed up and he had amazing kids on the roster. And so, you know, I, I had that going for me right from the start. I didn't have a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. I mean, these were good, really solid kids. Um, so I, I, I felt good about that. I felt good about the, the culture of what was going on. That, that part was good. Uh, I did notice that we had a highly international team. So uh, there were six out of the 12 players were from across the pond or you know South America or someplace. And I thought to myself, but one thing I know we could probably do is recruit more Texas kids. And I, I looked at Greg's rosters early on and he had been recruiting Texas kids, but man, there's only so many kids to go around. You think with all these great universities in the state of Texas that have golf teams that are competitive. So you lose a lot of battles. You get your nose bloodied a lot, but I, I did start. There's one thing I changed from the start was we started recruiting the state of Texas and uh, heavier and it's so much so the last two seasons before this season, we had all nine players were from the state of Texas. And this year, eight out of the 10 were from the state of Texas. Now, I've got a non-Texan coming this fall. I've got another non-Texan verbal the next year. So uh, 
I, I can't just recruit in Texas because you're going to lose a lot to some really great schools and great coaches that are recruiting here. But we did change that. The other thing was we needed a practice facility on campus. I uh, had a nice practice facility, but it was 25 minutes from campus. So kind of went to work early on finding some donors that would, were willing to do that. And a man named Billy Williams gave, gave a seed gift that got the whole thing going. Uh, and we were able to raise uh, every penny of a $6.5 million project, uh, all donor funds, you know, uh, didn't finance anything. So we built some, built some really good facilities right next to campus um, and then recruited the state of Texas. And pretty much other than that, I had a great assistant coach who just got a, a head coaching job at the University of Louisville, Ryan Black, um, an amazing, amazing assistant coach, really, really good. And I kept him because I knew who he was, but I also kept him for continuity and he, he really helped me in the transition. So basically recruiting changed a little bit and fundraising changed a lot. And then uh, we've, you know, just kind of preached, Brian and I preached to him for six years about what it takes to be a great player, what it takes to be a champion, that type of thing. And, you know, when you get some good kids that are motivated and uh, been pretty fortunate, we've been very blessed. We had really great kids here at Baylor since I've been here. Let me um, let me ask. Let me shift gears a little bit. I mean, it's it's somewhat related to college golf. Well, actually, it's it's very much related to college golf. But I want to ask you about your philosophy on qualifying. You know, every obviously every one of your kids wants to be in the starting five. They want to be on the plane or on the van. And you know, I'm sure there's times where you need to you know encourage the six and seven man to work harder to get into that lineup. But I'm I'm also guessing there's times when you want continuity in your starting five. So. How um, how do you maintain that balance of encouraging the guys that are not in the lineup and also um, maybe instilling confidence in the guys that and that that are? It's maybe the hardest thing we coaches do okay. at this level. And it's also the reason that um, you want to be real careful how what size your team is, because the larger it gets, that means there's more kids at home every time you go on the road with five kids. Uh, and I, I wrote a chapter in that book better than I found it called dead weight. It weighs more than you think. And it's all the reasons that kids become dead weight. And one of them is the team is too large. It's just too large. And when the team gets that big, you know, some kids are, are going to be at home. So it's one of the hardest things we have to do is to figure out ways to keep those guys motivated, right. to keep them positive, to keep them believing that. You know, the next time we qualify, maybe it's your chance. Maybe you'll jump in there and get that. Um, but it's also I, in, in the book, I wrote a chapter called Qualifying Ideas. So there's about 25 to 30 different qualifying techniques that I've used through the years. Wow. Not all mine. I mean, ton, uh, basically everything, you know, and everything I know we've stolen from somebody. So let's let's face it. There are very <laughs> few original ideas. But uh, I just went ahead and documented and wrote them down different ways of doing it. And I th I think. Um, one thing you have to figure out about qualifying is what are you trying to do with it? What, what are you trying to, what, what do you want wanting to happen? And I think, so you're trying to establish a lineup to take to the tournament. That's obvious. Uh, you want to create a competitive environment if you can, but you don't want it to have a bunch of hurt feelings. Also, um, uh, you want to kind of somehow or another, if you can simulate, um, the feelings, the, the nervous feeling that they're going to have once they get to a tournament. You'd like for qualifying to be so difficult that tournaments seem easy, uh, if you could. Uh, it gives players sort of a, a, a 
way that they could actually say, this is how I get to the tournament. I'm taking it out of the coach's hands. And that's what qualifying can do if you give him an opportunity to earn a spot. But having said all that, and I could go through all of those 25 to 30 different ways that you different thoughts and ways. But qualifying is really a very I've heard some people say, let's not even do qualifying. Don't even do it. Just have guys play rounds of golf and then coach, you pick them and you stand behind your picks and go play a tournament and come back. Um, And that happens on some campuses. Some campuses, the coach will qualify every single tournament. There'll be two spots, uh, there'll be three spots available. The other two, the coach picks. But every single tournament, they qualify. Well, I don't know if you're going to have good continuity there. Uh, The year we made match play three years ago, we made match play at the national championship. Uh, lost to the University of Oklahoma in the in the quarterfinals. Uh, that same five played every tournament the whole year. It's the only time in my 35 years of coaching that that's happened. It uh, just so happens there was a little break between the fifth and the sixth guy, and it's pretty easy just to keep taking those guys that were playing great, and they were winning tournaments. And So I, I've kind of danced around this. I think qualifying is necessary, but it's also can be overdone. It can really be overdone. You can do too much qualifying. Uh, eventually a coach has to decide, you know, I'm the one in charge and it, I have to figure out who I think the best players are. And it's not always just because Jimmy beat Johnny by one shot today. Right. You know, that's not, that's not always the case. Um, we, we fact a couple of years ago, Ryan Black and I, I, I was not going to be here for the last two rounds of qualifying. And I told Ryan Black, you're picking the team. Now, I'm going to flip the roles. I'm going to give you my suggestions, but you're the one deciding who's going. And we both picked. Uh, I, I, He asked my opinion, and I told him, and I would pick this kid. Well, the kid finished way back, but he had been our best player for three years. And we picked him. And it was kind of controversial on the team because he had played poorly in the qualifying. But he went up there and he shot our lowest score at that tournament. Shot our best score. So it was a coach's pick because the coach believed that it could happen. So I think you don't want to back yourself into a corner as a coach. You always want to leave yourself some sort of out because you're the one responsible for that five that you put out on the field, but on the golf course. But you also want to give kids a feeling that they're going to have an opportunity to go earn the spot through playing. So sure. that, yeah. that's that's why it's valuable. Yeah. What um what's maybe one of I don't want you to go through all 25 or 30 of them, but like what's a good qualifier format that you've used that has really produced some good, you know, some good grudge matches. Maybe someone listening to this to you speak is you know, they got their group of guys at their club or, or their, their buddies that they get around, you know, on, on the weekends. And they got, you know, eight or ten guys or whatever it is. And they're looking for something unique as far as a fun format of instead of just the typical Saturday game. Can you share maybe one of the formats that perhaps we're not aware of that might be an interesting way to, you know, settle some scores on the golf course over the weekend? Sure, absolutely. Bag carry. Okay. So bag carry is this. You, you're on the putting green. And you've, you've paired them up in twos. So they're going to have matches today and you're going to play an 18 holes stroke play match. So you're just going to have 72 beats 73, but on the putting green, you have a nine hole putting contest. Whoever wins a putting contest, he doesn't carry his bag in the first hole. His opponent does. So his opponent's carrying his own bag and his, his, uh, uh, playing competitors bag as well. And the only way that you can get, that bag, the only way you can get it back to where you're not carrying both bags 
is to tie the first hole. You have to tie the first hole. If you tie the first hole, then both guys are carrying their bag again. Uh, but if you win the first hole, then both bags go on your opponent's bag, and it's bag carry all all day long. Okay. So you might you might be, but and I the guys always told me so. Well, that's not realistic. It's you know it's not really what happens in golf, but I I contend it is because when you're carrying two bags, you're carrying that extra baggage on your shoulder that you carry with yourself anyway. Every time you play, every time you beat yourself up, every time you uh, are miserable about a three putt or you're upset about what's happened in the round. You carry that baggage with you all the time. Do you play golf? Correct? Sure. Yeah. Well, you carry baggage with you all the time. If you didn't, you wouldn't be doing this interview with me right now. Come on. I'm just telling you, I always tell guys, they, they say, well, um, you don't understand what I'm going through. I said, yeah, I do. I understand it so well that I'm coaching for a living. You're still playing. Okay. I understand what you're going through. The The point with bag carry though, is it, it, it illustrates uh, and really uh, magnifies uh, the mental baggage we carry with us, but it's harder when you're carrying both bags to tie a hole. It's harder to win a hole where you're carrying both bags. And so I've had a, I've never had it where somebody carried a bag all 18 holes, but I've had it 16 holes before oh, where he carried both bags, 16 holes, and you're just getting beat down further and further and further. And so th- that's actually a good one because there's a lot of trash talking that can go on uh, too. If you're at the club with your buddy and yeah, how many holes in a row has Jimmy carried your bag? Well, seven now. Oh man. You know, so people are talking about it. It's kind of a fun format. Uh, we don't do that one very often. And if we did, it would be early in the semester or early in the year. Wouldn't do it. You know, and that's another thing about qualifying. I don't think you should be qualifying late in the year for like conference regionals and nationals. Right, I just think right. Silly. You, you want some team continuity at that point. You want some guys building. And if you can't, as a coach, pick the team before then you're, you're kind of, you're a little bit confused at that point. I've done that before. That's no, it's not a fun place to be. All right. That, that bag carry was, was too good. Of course, with my friends, they're going to say, well, how are we going to carry two bags and all this beer? So that, that might be a little <laughs> bit of an issue. All right. So that was a good one. Give me one more. Cause that one was too good. Let's give me one, just give me one other good one. Well, this one right here is, is meant to build some, uh, some team unity thought, you know, if you will. Okay. So you do it very early in the year and you do it on consecutive days when the weather is going to be very similar, it's got to be within a few, a couple of miles an hour, sure. maybe three or five or 10 degrees. You know, you know, you're going to have two very similar days of weather. So weather wouldn't be the differentiator. Um, and so the very first day I'm playing with Johnny, let's say, or Jimmy, I'm, I, he's, he's the guy I'm playing with. So today I'm going to caddy for him for his qualifying round. Okay. Okay. And we both get his score that day. Okay. And the next day he's going to caddy for me and we both get my score. And so if if I shoot, if he shoots 74, the first day, we both get the 74. The next day I shoot 78. We both get the 78. We're both at 152 after 36 holes. And so one, you're pulling for Johnny or Jimmy or whoever it is. You're wanting him to do well. And he's pulling for you. You both want each other to do well because you're both, uh, and some people would say, well, how is this fair? I didn't say it was fair <laughs> at all. <laughs> I said, I wanted you to absolutely understand you're playing for so every time you're out on that golf course, the rest of the year, you're playing for Jimmy 
you know, he may not be in the, even in the team that day, he might be back at home in Waco, but you're playing for him. So, uh, in other words, of those 25 or 30 formats, those are two of them right there. And That's and great. I'll tell you one more that Mike sure, Holder thought sure. of that I loved. Uh, Carson Creek's a very difficult golf course, and guys lost golf balls all the time, and provisional balls were constantly being hit, just nonstop. And so one day, the, the show Survivor had just come on television, and he said, okay, guys, what we're going to do today, and I love this. He said, we're going to play Survivor. I want everybody to dump their golf balls out of their golf bag right now. And just I want you to have one golf ball in your hand. And that's the golf ball you're playing with today. That's it. You get no more. And when you lose that golf ball, you carry your golf bag and watch your teammates play the rest of the round. But you're carrying it for the rest of 18. It's called Survivor. And let's see who survives today. And so literally now Carson Creek, you can lose a ball in every swing. You can just, you, it's possible. So uh, anyway, I'll, I'll never forget it. This kid we had on the team lost his ball on the, on about the fourth hole. And he said, coach McGraw, can you call coach Holder? And, and I said, what, what do you want me to call him for? He says, well, I really don't want to just, I think it's kind of counterproductive. I think I'd like to play the rest of this round. I said, sure, I'll call him. And I called him and I said, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy wants to uh, play the rest <laughs> of the round, even though his score won't count today. And he says, you tell Jimmy to keep carrying that bag and I'll see him on 18 green. <laughs> yeah. I love this. But the point is, is you, you literally take care of that golf ball. Let's not be so hap haphazard and random with this deal. You, you're you're going to survive. And that golf ball means a lot to you. So um, I thought that was an interesting doing. We don't. And a lot of these things you would do once a year, if, if ever uh, you do it early in the year, you want some time for some of these formats to uh, be able to, you know, somebody could recover from it if he, if he got damaged that day. <laughs> yeah. so. I actually have played a version of that with some friends and we called it uh, the red ball game where we'd have, you know, we'd have 16 or, or 12 guys or whatever. We'd all break up into foursomes and on, it's kind of a variation on, on each hole. Someone was in charge of the red ball and uh, you had the, the team score, was um you know whatever the red ball was and if the red ball didn't make it through 18 holes then you got disqualified and you would see guys you know i i, I don't i don't want the red ball in this part three it's over water oh who, who's going to take it on this hole and then i have seen people you know take their shoes and socks off and and jump into to canals trying to get that thing or wade into forests and yeah it gets pretty serious when that's your only ball um yeah, I've I've done something like that, and you're right. You you take, you hit a lot of irons off the tee when you got the red ball, or or when you're playing Survivor. <laughs> you do, but the main thing he just wanted to make a point was I'm sick and tired of provisional balls. Yeah, don't be hitting them. And if you keep, you're going to hit one, you're done, you're finished. You know, it's funny because along those lines, um, uh, when Ricky Fowler was a freshman, I noticed because I actually played golf with him. He I wasn't playing any golf, and he encouraged me to play because he loved playing instead of practicing and one day we'd been looking for his golf ball for about 10 minutes i said ricky we, we need to move on it's, it's been over five it's 10 minutes he goes coach i'm not gonna lose a ball and he never lost a ball those years that i played with him at karsten creek because wow. he was gonna find it before we went on so we were trudging through with the rattlesnakes and the copperheads and the ticks and whatever he was gonna find his golf ball before we moved on so um, i always enjoyed that about him 
He um, well, let me let me get you out of here. We we've got there's such great stories. I think we could fill up a few more hours, but uh, let me. I I want to hope we can do this again sometime. But I want to ask you just a little bit about um, the the national championship moving from stroke play to match play starting in 2009. I mean, you know, it's been a decade now that we've had this match play. It's very exciting to watch on TV, um, and I guess it's exciting. For the players, you know, for the most part, it's been big name schools winning it. You know, Texas and Stanford and Oklahoma State. Um, you know, Augusta State popped in there for for back to backs. Obviously, um, a lot of people listening to this podcast they don't they don't play a lot of match play. Maybe it's once a year in a club championship, or maybe there's a special match play event. But from a coaching perspective, what are maybe some of the mental mistakes you kind of had to address with your players at, uh, you know, Oklahoma State, Alabama, Baylor? Um, you know, what are some of the things with match play that you've had to kind of help your players through in order to them or in order for them to succeed? Well, the one thing about match play is it's a fresh new start on every hole. So it's honestly, it's the way you should play stroke play. It, it doesn't matter that you made a quadruple or a triple or whatever on the hole before you've got to start over on the next hole. And that's what match play allows you to do. And, uh, so that's great. Uh, gets you in the mindset of you're always in the moment on this hole, all that really matters. And if you do that stroke play, you're a whole lot better off. But one other thing it does for you that's really good is every hole has a winner, a loser, or it ties. But there's going to be something of some sort of pressure on every hole. There's going to be a birdie putt to win, a birdie putt to tie, a par putt to win, a par putt to tie, whatever it is. Uh, somebody, you know, you think you've got the whole one, I've got a 12 footer uphill for birdie and he's in the bunker and he holds the bunker shot and I miss. So it's like, it's, there's always something happening all the time. So that makes match play pretty exciting. And it, it, now stroke play can be just as exciting if, if it's me against you, but, but I think people are convinced that match play brings about pressure on every hole. So if you can get your guys to understand and embrace that pressure, you're probably going to be better off. We'll uh, we'll get you out of here with this one final one. You know, I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, your one of your seniors, Cooper Dossie, who's coming back for his fifth year. And I reached out and I said, uh, I said, I'm, I'm talking to your coach a little bit later this week. I said, do you, do you have a story? And he's like, well, I won't tell it. I'll let him tell it. But um, there seems to be some sort of an incident with him and a push cart at Stanford. Does that ring a bell at all? Oh, it rings a bell. All right. Uh, me, me being old school, you know, push carts, eh, I wasn't really into them, but I allowed my players if they really wanted to use a push cart to use one. But I, I, so I, I wasn't much for it. And we were playing the practice round for the regional in 2017. And we were on the 14th tee, I believe or 15th tee. And um, his, his push cart was sort of on an angle. And as we were going back down there, I kind of pushed it a little bit and it fell over and his, it just rolled down the hill and he's really upset at me and I just keep walking and I can hear him back there saying whatever he's saying. It's not pretty, but so, um, he called his push cart, Tina. He figured if I call her Tina, she'll, she'll bring me a good score that day. You know, if I, if I give her a good name, so it was Tina and I pushed Tina down the hill and she didn't break, but, uh, anyway, so we get around to 18 and 18 is a long downhill part four. So it kind of goes sharply downhill at one point. Cooper pushes the push cart off the tee, pushes Tina down the hill, and she rolls about 40 yards down the hill. Well, I run forward and grab it, and I'm just kind of sort of at the top of this hill where it goes off steeply down to the bottom of the hole. Oh, no. 
And I said, watch this, Cooper. I'm going to push it all the way down past your golf ball. And I start running. And just as I'm pushing and going to release the push cart, my hamstring popped. And I literally did a barrel roll for 15 yards down the fairway. And I could not move. And the guys were all back there laughing because they think it's funny. Right. I have pulled a hamstring and it is bad. I can't even move. Plus my shoulder, my left shoulder is what broke my fall. So it's absolutely blowing up in pain. My hamstring, I can't even move. I can't pick myself up off the ground. And they all come down. They're all over me. Look, I said, guys, get out of here. Go, leave, go. And one of the parents was walking along and he picked me up and got me to a golf cart and got me to the trainer. But later when Cooper felt like it was time and he felt like enough time had passed, he said, wasn't so nice pushing Tina over back there on 14, was it? Because <laughs> oh Tina got her revenge. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so I've been very respectful to push carts ever since. <laughs> that one almost ended me. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. did, not, did not know where that story was going to go, but uh, you delivered. And, uh, there you go. And, there you uh, go. And, wow, you, you provided so many great stories. Um Coach, I just I can't thank you enough. These are just such great stories. Um, I know you're working on a second book. Uh, I hope we can keep in touch. Let me know when that is going to be released, and I, I know that I'll be able to share information on um, the, your first book. You know, better than I found it. Want to get that information out to the listeners, and uh, you know, stay safe and stay healthy during these uh, uncertain times. I know college golf is going to return next year. Should be absolutely incredible with all these super seniors so to speak coming back to school so i hope we can do it again and see each other down the road and uh, i appreciate you joining me on the back of the range well thank you so much i would love to come on again i appreciate it very much and there you have it special thanks to coach mike mcgraw from baylor university he was the perfect guest for episode 150 make sure you're following along on facebook twitter and instagram lots of exciting news coming up in the next couple weeks we'll see you again next week for another episode here at the back of the range.